Hello and welcome again to the podcast Expanding Eyes and to our ongoing, though fast-finishing, discussion of Homer's Odyssey. We are now at the climactic books 21 through 24. And if you're curious about what's ahead, my plan, such as it is, and I warn you that my plans are sometimes subject to quick change due to the rather improvised nature of my teaching and lecturing. But the plan is, and we should come close to it, I think, to talk today about the remainder of the Odyssey up to, but not including, the very strange final book, Book 24, a legend or rumor has come down from ancient times that Book 24 was in fact not part of the original Odyssey, but an add-on by another person. We'll never know probably whether there's any truth to that or not, and yet I think if you read it, you'll be able to see, and perhaps even in my summary of it orally, you'll be able to see that there are some peculiar things about it. And we can talk next week about, okay, was this necessary? Whether it was Homer in a funny mood or somebody else, is this artistically necessary? Is it an artistic success or something of a come down, something of an anticlimax at the very end? And everyone is free to have their own opinion uh, about that. But that is what I plan for next week, in addition to summing up by talking about the continuing career of our fascinating character Odysseus, though often known in later renditions by his Latin name, Ulysses, one of the most fascinating characters in literature and one proof of that is how many later treatments uh, there are of not just the story of the Odyssey, but continuing that story or showing the character of Odysseus or Ulysses in other situations all the way up to the 20th century. He continues to fascinate people. Then the week after that, we're never at a loss for a good story, and especially since the stories are all interconnected to an amazing degree that people often don't realize. We will go on to the great Latin epic, the great Roman epic, Virgil's Aeneid, but we're still in the same storyline. We return to the fall of Troy, but we follow now the other side, the Trojan side. Two weeks from now, we will see that Aeneas becomes the leader of what remains of the Trojans after the fall of Troy, and he leads them out of the burning walls of Troy by ship, looking for what has been promised to them by the gods, particularly by Jupiter, the king of the gods, a new Troy, though it will not be called that. Eventually, 
it will be called Rome because the legend was, and it is indeed a legend, and Virgil actually knew it was a legend, but went with it anyway. The legend was, however, that the Romans were descended from the, the losing side of the Trojan War. Whether this implies self-esteem issues on the part of the Romans, I don't know. But at any rate, that was the legend that what later became Rome was founded by descendants of the Trojans. Of course, there are all sorts of things that have to be accounted for, like why don't we speak Latin and so forth, uh, or why don't we speak Greek, I should say, and so forth. But there was an answer for everything, and the storyline continues. Eventually, it will continue even further than that to include the early history of the British Isles. So we have many stories ahead of us. Those of you who are wondering what the, what can fill this podcast, uh, I see this podcast as not running out of stories for a long, long time. And all the stories, as I say, have connections that are not always talked about and make it all the more fascinating. But to return to the Odyssey, we left off at the climactic moment in Book 21, The Bow Contest. And just to recap a little, this is a ruse. The ruse is that we are going to settle the question of who is to marry Penelope by having a bow contest, and the winner of the bow contest will get her. They have no plan that that would ever take place. And in fact, the bow contest, as such, never really takes place itself because the suitors are such losers that they are incapable even of stringing the bow, let alone drawing the bow, let alone shooting the bow. So they are like triply publicly humiliated losers even though at some points they try to cheat. They try to heat the bow to make it more pliable and bendable so that they can string it. They are utter failures, and they demonstrate it in front of everyone. What are we going to shoot through? It's, the text is not fully clear, perhaps, but artists' renditions that I've seen agree with the way I visualize it. Twelve axe heads buried with one of the blades in a mound of earth with the sockets parallel to the ground, the sockets where the shaft would go of the axe, hollow, lined up in a row into a kind of a long pipe shape. Okay, shoot through that, all 12 of these at once. And it never gets to that on the part of the suitors because they can't even deal with the bow. Telemachus tries. It takes him three times. And on the fourth, he is on the verge of being able to string the bow. And Odysseus checks him with a look, with a gesture. 
No, you can't afford to break our cover now because this is all strategy. And Telemachus, a total credit to his newly arising manhood. This is Telemachus's coming of age story, his coming of age as a full man. And what that means is more than can you, do you have strength enough to outshine your peers and draw a bow? Are you strong enough? Yeah, that too. But there is judgment, there is discipline, there is maturity involved in being a man. And Telemachus is man enough to set aside his ego, his self-proving male ego, and pretend to fail along with the suitors. It is a pretense because if he had succeeded, all hell would have broken loose too early. What has to happen is that the bow has to get in the hands of the disguised Odysseus, who is right now standing in the doorway of the central room of the palace, the only way out. And he needs to have that long distance weapon in his hand so that eventually when he does that, the suitors will be trapped in a room and it will be shooting fish in a barrel. Also, their armor and weapons have been locked up while they were asleep or too drunk to notice the night before by Odysseus and Telemachus with a little help with Athena with a supernatural flashlight for some light. They've got this all prepared because there's 108 suitors and they have to be defeated by a man, his son, and a few helpers from the lower orders. So the suitors fail and fail, but eventually Odysseus does get the bow by the end of book 21. He gets the bow in his hand and the wonderful scene, wonderfully translated by my favorite translator, Robert Fitzgerald, the wonderful scene, okay, we do this slow and easy. We build up suspense, but we also get an index of the man here. And Odysseus took his time, turning the bow, tapping it every inch for borings that termites might have made while the master of the weapon was abroad. The suitors were now watching him, and some of them jested among themselves. Oh, a bow lover, dealer in old bows. Maybe he's got one like it at home. Some sophisticated critics say there's no such thing as human nature, that it's all socially constructed, but I have to say constructed or innate. Assholes are assholes in every age, all the way up through the Bronze Age. What jerks, you know, and they just keep proving it right up to the end. But the next passage, Odysseus examines that bow slowly, carefully, despite the suitors, and magnificently translated by Fitzgerald, 
in a passage that is not just translation, but beautiful lyrical poetry in modern English. But the man, skilled in all ways of contending, polytropos, satisfied by the great bow's look and heft, like a musician, like a harper, when with quiet hand upon his instrument he draws between his thumb and forefinger a sweet new string upon a peg, so effortlessly Odysseus in one motion strung the bow, then slid his right hand down the cord and plucked it, so the taut gut vibrating hummed and sang a swallow's note. In the hushed hall, it smote the suitors, and all their faces changed. Then Zeus thundered overhead, one loud crack for a sign. The beautiful translation, the, you can hear that string vibrating through the assonance of the words used to translate, the taut gut vibrating, hummed and sang. Just beautiful. And then one moment of utter stillness, a melodramatic but effective thundercrack, and Odysseus fires. Now flashed arrow from twanging bow, clean as a whistle, through every socket ring and grazed not one to thud with heavy brazen head beyond. He suddenly, after that dramatic pause, shoots through everyone, and then announces, the hour has come to cook their lordship's mutton, supper by daylight. And as I think I said last week, it's a Clint Eastwood or Arnold Schwarzenegger moment. Hasta la vista, baby, make my day. We would say, in American slang, cook their goose. You've had it. And we pass to book 22. As I also have said before, the Alexandrian editors, or whoever, cut the book up, cut the poem up into 24 books, had a very good sense of where to divide, by no means at random, pause for dramatic effect, move to book 22, and immediately the suitors are frozen with shock and just their brains have gone blank because the impossible just happened. Seize the moment, seize the psychological advantage, and just more strategy. The text does not say so, but we can see it. If we read carefully, take out the ringleader, and that's the next thing Odysseus does in the opening of Book 22. He drew to his fist the cruel head of an arrow for Antinous, just as the young man leaned to lift his beautiful drinking cup, embossed two-handed golden. The cup was in his fingers, the wine was even at his lips, and did he dream of death? Odysseus's arrow hit him under the chin, and punched up to the feathers through his throat. Now the suitors are doubly in shock. And again, more human nature that remains true all the way from the Bronze Age, when people 
are faced with something that they just can't afford to believe. They, they rationalize, they grasp at straws, irrational as they may be. Wildly, they turned and scanned the walls, no shields or weapons, and they imagined as they wished. Oh, it's a wild shot, an unintended killing. Yeah, sure. Odysseus informs them of the, the error of that assumption. You yellow dogs, you thought I'd never make it home from the land of Troy. You took my house to plunder, twisted my maids to serve your beds. You dared bid for my wife while I was still alive. Contempt was all you had for the gods who rule wide heaven. Contempt for what men say of you hereafter. Your last hour is come, you die in blood. Okay. Second in command, Eurymachus says, uh, okay, man, we're sorry, and I'm not, I'm only being a little Dolzani facetious here. This is basically what he's saying in basically the tone of voice. Points to the body of Antinous and said, it was his fault. He led us on. And he's dead now and has his portion. Spare your own people. As for ourselves, we'll make restitution of wine and meat consumed. If you just let us go, we'll, we'll leave, leave. We're sorry, man. You know, we'll even clean up the beer bottles in the hallway and so forth and so on. Yeah, not going to happen. And the fight is on. There is a fight, and it begins with... Odysseus exhausting his arrows in legolas greenleaf fashion with his long-distance weapon. Finally, they have to close together, next with spears, finally with hand-to-hand -hand weapons. The suitors do get weapons, courtesy of evil goatherd Melanthius, who climbs a wall because the walls don't go up all the way to the ceiling, apparently, and gets armor from the storeroom for the suitors. As a way of coping with this, the other members of the lower order, Eumaeus and the cattle foreman, Phaloichos, string Melanthius up to the ceiling just for safekeeping, and we'll deal with him later. But the fight is on. There is an invisible ally, Athena, appears as mentor to rally them, and also her supernatural shield. This is a famous device of Greek mythology. A shield called the Aegis appears suddenly and panics the suitors. And eventually, to make a long story short, Lots of fight scenes, but by the end of book 22, the hall is quiet. The hall is totally quiet. The suitors are dead. And Odysseus, in yet another moment of magnificent translation by Robert Fitzgerald, Odysseus looked around him, narrow-eyed, for others who had lain hidden while death's black fury passed. In blood and dust, he saw that crowd all fallen, many and many slain. Think of a catch, 
that fishermen haul into a half-moon bay in a fine-meshed net from the white caps of the sea, how all are poured out on the sand in throes for the salt sea, twitching their cold lives away in Helios' fiery air. So lay the suitors heaped on one another. Wonderful moment on both the part of the translator and of Homer, this lyrical epic simile for something utterly grotesque and violent, typical of the Odyssey in a way. And from there, it's aftermath. We have also a female side to this issue. There have been 12 bad maidservants, bad meaning that they went over to the suitor's side, slept with the suitors, allied themselves, betrayed their mistress, Penelope, and they have to be dealt with. This turns out to be a job given over to Telemachus, and it's not one of the poem's more ahem feminist moments. But first, those maidservants have to clean up the hall and haul out the corpses of their own boyfriends. Very, very convenient that you have housekeeping. And then they're hanged. The utter brutality of the ending here is, at least by our standards, somewhat shocking. And yet, typical. This is one thing that makes Odysseus a rather enigmatic character to more modern standards. Moving from the gentle, even the sentimental, suddenly to this sort of scathing violence, and dealing with the maidservants handed over to his son, the evil goatherd, Melanthios. They chop his nose and ears off, pull off his genitals to feed the dogs, and hack his hands and feet away. Is this justified? Well, remember Odysseus's speech. You invade my home. You come, you sexually harass my wife, you threaten my son, and also this is my kingdom, not just my domestic home. You are traitors as well as invaders of my household. And you know, whatever the heroic code demands of a warrior, Perhaps we can say he's not being too rational about this. Everything he loves has been threatened, and he lashes out with complete violence and brutality. He may be the intellectual one, as warriors go, the wily, crafty one, but there's this streak in him when pushed where he can be quite violent. Which leads us to the wonderful book 23. The meeting, really for the second time, but this time out of disguise, between Odysseus and Penelope. And it does not go as Telemachus, who is watching it, thinks it should go or would go. And he is just dumbfounded by this. 
They, Penelope is informed your husband is back. She says that's not possible, but I'll go see. They come into a room. They sit. It's a wonderful cinematic moment. Sit on opposite sides of the room and just sort of sit there looking at each other. Telemachus is horrified, and you, you imagine this young man has probably visualized this scene, the reunion of his parents, his deepest wish for his whole life, really. Now it's happened, and what are you guys doing? I cannot figure you older people out. And he says that, literally. Mother, cruel mother, do you feel nothing? drawing yourself apart this way from father. Will you not sit with him and talk and question him? What other woman could remain so cold? And Penelope answers this. I am stunned, child. I cannot speak to him. I cannot question him. I cannot keep my eyes upon his face. If really he is Odysseus, truly home, Beyond all doubt, we too shall know each other better than you or anyone. There are secret signs we know, we too. And Telemachus is presumably standing there thinking, what? There are secret signs we know? Did you like both belong to a club with a secret handshake? What in the world does that mean, Mom? We will find out, however, by the end of the book. Right now, she is distrustful, and she should be. Rem's in the family. Telemachus ought to be remembering that he himself was reluctant to believe that it was really his father. Distrust in a dangerous world, a world of false appearances, is a proper survival-oriented thing. And so too here. He could be an imposter. It's been 20 years. So she temporizes or seems to temporize. They agree to rig up the pretense of a feast in the hall so that the town won't know that the suitors are dead yet because they're going to have a further problem dealt with in book 24 on the hands of the fathers of the dead suitors coming for heroic code revenge on the, because of their sons. Okay, it's nighttime. We have to sleep. We'll deal with that in the morning. And Penelope offhandedly says, this fellow, make up his bed for him, Euryclea. Put it outside the bedchamber. And Odysseus erupts. With this, she tried him to the breaking point, and he turned on her in a flash, raging, Woman, by heaven, you've stung me now. Who dared move my bed? No builder had the skill for that unless a god came down to turn the trick. No mortal in his best days could budget with a crowbar. There is our pact and pledge, our secret sign. There's the answer. It's the bed. Why? because the bed has been carved out of an old olive tree rooted in 
the ground. The only way to move it out in the hall would be if someone had cut it down. That's what did it. And the minute he says that, she knows it's really Odysseus. She has tricked him. The bit has not been cut down. But only Odysseus would know about that bit. She is the right woman for him. Whatever we may feel about his double standard, sleeping with other women over the past 10 years, whether we forgive that or not, Still, this is really the only woman for him, and he knows it. This is the only person in the entire poem, maybe ever, who has outsmarted the great Odysseus. She is totally his equal. She is the right one. And they are back together. It's a secret sign both in the sense of a test, but why that? test, this peculiar detail. I mean, yeah, it's like totally cool, Martha Stewart living sort of thing to have a bed rooted in the ground, but what? And it doesn't take much to see this is a metaphor. This is their marriage, rooted in the ground, going down towards the center of the earth. To cut it down means the marriage itself didn't mean that much to her, that she has finally lost the feeling for it, but she has not. And it is a wonderful moment. And then, then they have the great reunion. So they came into that bed, so steadfast loved of old, opening glad arms to one another. And they do what any couple who deeply love each other and have been separated for many years would do. They make love and stay up all night reveling in stories. She could not close her eyes till all was told. We're not done with the story yet. Book 24 still waits us, and we'll go there next week. Mm -hmm.